But today I'm going to try to, to wrap up a little bit for us so that we're not stuck in no man's land. So let's go back to chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians. And a blessing to see how, you know, in, in his entire context here of, of him trying to, to demonstrate how, how the Lord magnifies himself in his weakness. Meaning in, in the entire letter is one where the, he's faced with multiple challenges of men in the church that are drawing their attention, the powerful people, the powerful speakers, they're, uh, they're convincing, and he says, you know, I'm, I'm not any of that in, in terms of trying to, of my own strength, just trying to convince you. And then he embraces, I think the key piece here in this second part of, of chapter 4 is this notion of how he embraces weakness. And we, we covered last week, we, we started out last week already with um, talking about the first few verses, one. So let's look at verses, verse 7, <clears throat> verse 7, chapter 4, and then I think we, we covered some of this last week, so I'm not going to go back over it, but I want to just bring us back, to, back, up, back up to speed here. Verse 7 of chapter 4, he says, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power... Belongs to God and not to us. Then he gives these these pictures here in verses eight and verse nine, and we're going to unpack those a little bit this morning, and then bring us to to how God has magnified Himself and how God demonstrates His power in the in the life of Paul and in his in his ministry. One thing I, I emphasized last week is how specific he is in, in verse seven. Talk about surpassing power meaning power that's not comparable to anything else. That's not, you can't, you can't compare to anything else. God is, God is in a league of his own, if you will. You know, he doesn't, he's not measured up against anything. His knowledge, his power, his, his will, there, there's nothing comparable to God. We see that a lot of times uh, in, in the Psalms, uh, magnifying the Lord, praising God, glorifying the Lord. There's none like him, Right. And so he, he demonstrates that. And what he says here in, in, verse, in verse 7, beginning, he says, Surpassing power, what belongs to God and not to us. And then he describes the, in verse 7, how we're um, jars. He says, We are not, we are afflicted in every way, not crushed, perplexed, always carrying the body to death of Christ, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our, in our bodies. One thing I just want to. to draw our attention to last week is the fact that this is our our weakness is intentional now just think for a moment what that means from a human perspective whenever man normally looks for strength we're drawn by strength god is drawn by our weakness weakness is attractive to the lord now again that's so counterintuitive because we want to demonstrate strength and actually one thing we we underlined last week is that God is not making. You know, God is here. He doesn't strengthen us to make us powerful. We continue to grow in our weakness, in our dependence upon Him. So there's just a beauty and weakness that's so counterintuitive to man's nature, even our own flesh. I mean, who here wants to be weak? Who here just embraces weakness? Here, who here says, "I just, I just love that feeling of feeling like I just can't." You know, boy, as a parent, when you see your children. <coughs> Uh, go off and you want to help them, you feel helpless, right? Or when there's a tragedy in your family and you feel helpless. No one likes this feeling of feeling helpless. 
and feeling weak. And yet Paul embraces all that. Why? For the purpose of what? For that God might be magnified and God might be glorified. The first way is that he's magnified in in jars of clay. The picture here we talked about last week is is the is the throw a jar of clay is a throwaway container of the Old Testament. No, this, this is their disposable jars, the stored uh, wine and oil, and sometimes hidden treasures in those jars as well. We're just jars of clay. We're not this this polished brass that's meant to shine, because everything we're supposed to uh, draw attention to what to the the message of the gospel, the the treasure that we're carrying, and not not towards ourselves. So covered that last week. Talked about some of these, and then we we began here and did not really unpack this fully last week. The idea of being magnified in in trials. Uh, afflicted but not crushed. I want to to come back on this a little bit and land here just for a few minutes this morning and see how he contrasts what it means to be afflicted but not crushed, to be perplexed but not driven to despair, to be persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed. Of course, he's he's sharing his own experience in this. Now, remember, he started out this chapter by talking about not, not losing heart. He wraps up this chapter in verse 16, also by saying, this is why we don't lose heart. This is why I don't get discouraged. This is why I uh, continue to stay encouraged in the Lord. So the first one, afflicted but not crushed. Afflicted, we talked about this, the idea of being squeezed. Now, some of you perhaps can, can give a description of what this means to you when you read this. What it means to be, to be squeezed and pressed, pressed hard upon something. But yet not being not being crushed. Somebody said you're squeezed but not squashed. Squeezed but not squashed. How many of you can can relate to times in your life where you felt squeezed and pressured and yet the truth of God's word sustained you and you weren't crushed. You weren't uh, you weren't squashed as described here. So I, I would like to do it in these four examples here, not just read through them. But also kind of contemplate as a testimony to the Lord how you found yourself in these same situations where you felt you felt the walls closing in. That's kind of when people kind of feel like anxiety, that room starts getting small, right? You start feeling the walls around you closing in and you start feeling the pressure and pressure is mounting and there's multiple sources. It's rarely one issue. It's usually multiple things that come pressure upon you and yet, and yet you're not crushed. You don't cave in. You don't, you don't crumble and fall apart. Not because you're strong, right? His dependence is not because, well, I just, I just you can do it. You know, you, you got it within yourself. And the, 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 the humanistic, worldly, motivational speech that you give to yourself, no. It's, it's one purely of dependence on, on the Lord. Can, can someone relate to, to that or give even a testimony of what it means to be pressed and squeezed and yet... How God sustained you, sustained you in that. Yes, Julie. This last year, Eric and I went through quite a bit of trials that we weren't expecting. And I would tell you, we both at certain times, we were both on our knees, just not knowing where to go one way or the other. And God always showed his grace, love, and mercy for us in ways that we were not check that came in the mail or something, someone bringing us food or something, whatever it was, mm-hmm. God has provided us 
here in April looking for uh, property to purchase, and we don't do credit cards. And I guess we don't have a credit card vehicle. And yeah. when we got up here, um, the gentleman at the airport, I actually started bawling my eyes out. Um, he said, Listen, he said, God told me to go ahead and bring you this vehicle. We don't need your credit card. He didn't even make us give us a deposit. He basically handed us the car and said, God loves you. Never forget, he's always taking care of you. And wow. I just started crying. Because mm-hmm. it's, we wouldn't have been able, we would have had an Uber the entire time we were up here looking at properties. But just even in the simplest things, God has always come through for us. Just the point sometimes where we felt almost broken and not knowing what to do or how to handle it, he's always provided. And the beauty of that is that the reason why I titled it this way, God's power, the surpassing power he describes in verse 7, is magnified in our trials. You can't, it puts God on display. None of us here likes to feel squeezed and pressured and pressed. It's not a comfortable feeling. But there's a moment in that that you... You trust the Lord and you watch Him work in your life. It doesn't mean He's solving your problems. It doesn't mean that Santa Claus is coming to town. It means that you learn to rest in the Lord. But you can't experience that until you're pressed. You don't experience that until you're squeezed. And as much as we don't like that feeling, that's where we need to be so that the the, power of the Lord can be can be magnified. I like the second one as well here, perplexed but not driven to despair. Perplexed is the idea of perplexed is to be in doubt. It's being in doubt, it's not knowing how to decide, not knowing which way to turn. You've ever you ever been there? Not knowing exactly, hey what what should, you know what's God's will? What's the decision that, that are significant, but decisions that are needed to make and not knowing how to decide, there's a, there's a play on words here that doesn't come out in the English. He's saying at a loss, but not at a loss. So he's kind of repeating that, but in a way that he's saying, I'm at a loss, but not at a loss. So then it can't really translate that well in the English. But for us, it's saying basically he's, he's perplexed. You come to a point where you're perplexed. You're, you're in doubt. You're, you're not sure how to decide, or you're not sure about how to best proceed. But... You're not driven to what? You're not driven to despair. So you might be in doubt. And I tell you what, I'd be the first to raise my hand. Yeah, there's plenty of time, and I got plenty of things still in my back pocket that I've got to think about and, and decide and like not knowing what's you know, not what's the right decision. I don't live my life that way. I, I try to to do what is right and and act upon the, the truth and the knowledge I have, but I don't sit there worrying, you know, is this am I on the right train or am I I'm on the wrong train, you know. The, uh, I don't sit there worried about that, but there have been many, many times in my life where I've been perplexed, not knowing how to decide. But yet the response to that is despair is the idea of being utterly lost. So see, he's saying I'm at a loss, but I'm not at a loss, meaning I'm perplexed and maybe in doubt, but I'm not at an utter loss with no resources, having lost all hope. Dr. Tenia, I'll put his quote here, bewildered, but not befundled. So the idea of being befuddled is the idea of not being able to think clearly. So I'm at a point where I can, I can, 
I'm at a point where, yes, I could be perplexed. I'm in doubt as to what I should do next, but not to the point where I'm not able to think clearly and not at the point where I've got no resources that I can draw upon. And so he, he, he contrasts the fact that th- there's the reality of being squeezed and pressed. There's a reality of, at times in my own life being perplexed, being in doubt, and that's okay. I mean, listen, if I had the answers for everything, then I wouldn't have to turn to the Lord for, for answers either. So, again, we, we like certainty. I would love to be able to tell you exactly where I'm going to be next year in regards to a school project, in regards to a build-out, in regards to raising funds. And I would love to have the answers. And I hate not having answers. The teachers would yeah, too. teachers would too. Yeah. <laughs> I, who here does not like to have answers? Men especially who are driven to, you know, to take charge. You know, we want answers. What, okay, if I go to this degree, what's the job outcome possibility? What's the job market going to look like? Who would be possibly... We, we think three... or always five steps ahead. And so... We find ourselves in situations where we're at times perplexed, not knowing how to decide, but we're not to the point where we have no, nothing to draw upon, and we're at a loss. And he, he contrasts that the reality of being in those places. And what he's trying to, to bring out for us is, is in those moments that God's superior power that belongs to him is manifested and is drawn out. And so as we get a little bit restless, and that's why, you know, sometimes we get re- restless, and you know what we do when we get restless? We use that credit card. The credit card is my, you know, my answer to prayer. I could swipe it and, and, and get out of whatever problem I'm in. Well, at least I worry about that problem later. <laughs> uh, we, we run to so many things to run from a situation, and here's what I find difficult for a believer is to rest in the midst of perplexity or to rest in the midst of being squeezed. We either want to walk or run away from it. So, hey, I have a bad thing going on here. I don't get along with so so I don't get along with some somebody and there's a tough situation and they don't so I'm gonna leave and, and I'm gonna start press the reset button and go to another church. Build new relationships that, that are not conflictual. Well you know how long that lasts Three to five years later, you're in a new conflictual relationship, so you press the reset button, you go to another church, and you keep, you keep moving, and you're not letting God use, squeeze you, and let that work take, take its place. Or you're in a situation where you're, there's, you're, you're perplexed, and what do you do when you're perplexed, when you're not sure how to decide? Well, we jump the gun. We make poor decisions because we feel pressure to make a decision because we don't like not knowing. So we're, gonna, we're, gonna, we're not going to wait patiently for a situation to providentially either not solve itself in, in that sense, but providentially God intervene. And it's, it's, you find yourself, like I've been there many times, not sure exactly, and I want to I hurry up. Let's just, let's just do it. Let's just hire that person. I know they're not, they're not the right person. I know they don't, love, they don't know the Lord and they don't go to church, but boy, they can play basketball, so let's just hurry up and hire him. You know, because we're under pressure to solve these problems. And in doing so, if you just don't, if you can't just rest in the Lord, draw upon Him, we, we we get ahead of ourselves. Actually, we get ahead of the Lord, and we don't allow that to take place. What needs to take place, and that's for His His power to, to magnify itself. I like the one here: persecuted but not forsaken. To be persecuted is to to be mistreated, harassed, uh, to make flee. I like it. Part of the definition of being persecuted is to make flee or drive away. And it was under persecution. We want us to we want to flee persecution. 
No one, no one here runs to the fire naturally. We run from the fire. We run, you don't run in the fire, towards the fire. But we're not abandoned. That you've been forsaken is being abandoned. So yes, we, we could be mistreated, harassed. We're under this, this pressure. We're under this affliction. But we're not abandoned. Part of the definition also is the idea of being left behind. So one is the pressure of leaving, uh, pressure to make you flee or make you run. But the forsaken has the opposite definition of it, which is not being left, left behind or to, to, to not being abandoned. So persecution is a reality. It's not just always circumstances that are, are, are trials. You can have unbelieving family that's, that's very, that can persecute you from the sense that they're, they're mocking your faith and they give you a hard time about your faith. And Thanksgiving time, meal time, talking about last week, is sometimes a time where those things kind of rise to the surface. You can have a boss that they don't, and honestly, one thing I, I've, I've learned early on is as long as I'm not the one being a jerk, just being recorded, <laughs> you know, as long as I'm not the one causing the, the strife, if it's caused because of the value, your value system, if it's caused because of what you stand for, if, if it's caused because you refer to the Bible and that bothers them, I don't care if they call themselves Christian, but they're annoyed at the fact that you keep pointing them back to God because they really want to wallow in their pain and they don't want you to say, trust God, and they get, they get annoyed by that. I mean, it's, it's not usually the, the devil running out there that's giving them a hard time. It's those who are con- confessing believers, professing believers, rather, that give us a hard time about about our commitment to Christ as well. So you, you're mixed with that, and you, you can have these these mistreatments even, but you're not abandoned, and you're not left behind by who? Of course, by the Lord himself. He, you have him to sustain you, but you don't discover that. You know, it's one thing to have a whole bunch of friends. It's one thing to lose your friends and have Christ, and to discover that Christ is sufficient. And when you discover that Christ is sufficient, then you can have healthy friendships that actually... Uh, can encourage you in the Lord and strengthen you in the Lord. Last one he says here, struck down but not destroyed. Struck down but not destroyed. The idea of being cast down, thrown to the ground, this could be in, in the term, This could be as being humbled. You know, the, the picture of being humbled, being thrown down, being cast down. I found it interesting. One, one commentator was saying there's the implication of a weapon and what it means by here, the idea of being struck down is the implication here is that you're being struck down by, by a weapon or struck down by, by an enemy, I guess is the, the picture is given here. Knocked down, Dr. Tenney, I guess he likes the, the wording. He, he used this. I didn't put his quote here. Uh, he, he put down, knocked down, but not knocked out. So, um, boy, I tell you, um, the idea of being knocked down some of you might feel that way today. You're, you might feel knocked down today because you've tried to be nice and, and, and your niceness didn't get you niceness in return because you, you tried to love on somebody, they didn't love you in return because you, you tried to speak truth to somebody and they hated you for it because circumstances, you try to get up. If I, every time I get up, I fucking get knocked down. I try to I try to find it back on my feet, right? I'm finally back on my feet and my car breaks down. Oh, there we go again. You know, I finally fix the car and the washer breaks down and... I finally, out of my third rotation of illnesses and the, 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 the next child is sick again and they're back in that cycle of sickness in the family and, 
and the, the, this this continual. But he says, but not destroyed. Destroyed the idea of putting an end to or render render useless, not rendered not rendered useless. Meaning in that in that God still in that obviously magnifies himself and demonstrates his power. It's we could probably take and I know for myself and Jane and I we could go through so many of our life stories that center around times where we felt these afflictions, we felt these being perplexed, what do you do next? We felt the persecutions, we felt just the events of life keep striking you down. And yet with that, learning to rest in the Lord and let this surpassing power of God that belongs to him magnify is, is a beautiful thing. But I know, I know what it's like to be restless in those moments. I know what it's like to, to, to want to, to rush to something or to flee from something. I remember seeing a, a testimony years ago from a Chinese pastor, and they asked how you could pray for him in the midst of his trials. He, and he said something to the effect that he says, uh, don't pray that God would remove trials. Pray that God would give us stronger backs. And I think many times our prayers are prayers of trying to flee from and we need, to, we need to also embrace the idea of not just fleeing it from, but how do we embrace it and let God demonstrate his power, power in that. So beautiful part of, of, this, of this chapter here. So his surpassing power is magnified in jars of clay, magnified in trials, magnified in, in death. There's a beautiful picture here, even though obviously we don't embrace the picture of death, but here's what he's describing here that I think is, is helpful for us, is obviously in embracing death, and he's going to talk about dying to self daily so that Christ might him be brought to life daily as well. Paul deepens his point here by comparing his experience with that of Jesus in death, which is death is tied to weakness, and resurrection power is... is uh, resurrection, rather, is tied to power. So he's making this contrast of what we would call the weakness power principle and the life-death principle of Christ himself. So as Christ was death and resurrected, so do I live in weakness being displayed so that God's power might be manifested in, in my life. It's the process of dying rather than the final state of death. Paul's meeting, I put this quote from, from Barrett here, he says... Paul's meaning is that is that the one is that one who observed his life as a Christian apostle would see constantly repeated a process analogous to the killing of Jesus or comparable to the killing of Jesus. Meaning his as Christ was put to death and brought back to life, so his life as an apostle is one where he's continually put to death so that Christ might be manifested in his life. We who share, put this here, we who share in his dying so that the life of Jesus, he says verse 10, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. So he walks through this. As you, as you read it the first time, as you read it one time through, you have to go back through and, and digest it to understand the, the nuance of what he's saying. Look at verse 10, chapter 4. So we saw 8 and 9. He does those, he does those contrasts here in, in uh, verse 8 and 9. Then in verse 10 he goes, Always what? Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, 
so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death, and, I, and I'll explain verse 12, so death is at work in us, but life, life in you. He's describing God's power being manifested what? In him dying to self daily. As, as Christ died for us, so do I die daily so that he, as he describes in verse, for we who live are always, so that Jesus may also be manifested in, in our bodies. He, he insists on this point, and he concludes here, as I said, with an unexpected statement in verse 12. I think maybe I have. He concludes with an unexpected statement in verse 12. He says, and you would think in verse 12, you would think the verse would say, so death is at work in us, but life is at work in us as well. He doesn't say that. He says, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. What we see on display in verse 12 is what one author calls the great... Let's see, make sure I got... Yeah, the great exchange of the gospel. Christ's life for ours. What Paul is describing in verse 12, and the reason why it's written this way, is for us to, to, to insist on this point. Some call it the great principle of the cross. Cross died that we might live. Those who minister and those who serve the gospel embrace death as the operational principle, if you will. George Mueller said, there was a day when I died, and that's the day I died to George Mueller. The, the ministry as we serve the Lord, and just, just think how counterintuitive it is, not only to our flesh, but to those who are listening to what he's saying. Surrounded by men who are lifting themselves up and, and demonstrating their, their power, demonstrating their skill, demonstrating their, their convincing abilities. He, he's embracing something totally opposite of that. We embrace what Christ embraced himself in that we embrace death to self so that he might live. What he's saying, about the, what he's saying to the Corinthian church is, I embrace dying to self so that you might have life. And that's the heart of ministry. And in doing that, the surpassing power of God is manifested in life. The surpassing power of God is manifested in my life as I learn daily to die. As I give up my rights, as I give up my, my ambitions, I give up my dreams, I give up my personal ambitions, I, can, I give up my personal desires, I give up my comforts. As I let those things die, I do so that he might live. And just think about our lives, and I, I could have a whole, whole long laundry list of things that still need to die that every day I want to poke up again. No, I'm going, to, I'm going to give that up. I'm going to give that up. I'm going to give that up. It's pain, death is painful. I mean, no one embraces death. Oh, I'm just going to let this die today. You know, I really would rather go just enjoy myself doing this, but no, I'm going to, you know, for the cause of Christ, I'm going to go serve the gospel, I'm going to go do this. And that's, no, it's not easy. It's dying. That's why he, he emphasizes this continually. But that is... The great exchange of the gospel. Christ died so that we might have life. He says, my ministry is marked by that. My ministry is pictured by that. I die daily to self so that you might have, might have life. The power of the gospel comes in our weakness and not in, 
our strength. Two things, I see we got five, six, seven minutes left here. Magnified in faith. So he's going to switch here in verse 13 to demonstrate the, the, his, his ongoing ability. He's going to shift to explain how God's power now is sustained in his weakness. Verse 13 says, since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believe and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak. So he, he describes the, the ongoing testing of his faith and how God is magnified in his ongoing faith. He quotes in verse 13, I believed and so I spoke. And again, when he's quoting, they're familiar with the Old Testament, so they're familiar with what he's quoting. He's quoting uh, Psalm 116, verse 10. Right in the middle of Psalm 116 is where David, King David, almost, almost died. And they're known in the context, and in, in, in 116, if you look through verse 3, verse 8, verse 15, God had uh, delivered David from death. David believed God had delivered him, and he spoke of him. What God is saying in, verse, in Psalm 116, David is speaking of a moment where, where he was near death, and that almost died. And with that, though, he says what? David says, I believed, and so I spoke. Paul this place, this place is faith at the very heart of Psalm 116. And Paul says, I could relate to David. Paul, like David, also exercised faith, believed, and so he spoke and preached God's word. God's word. In other words, in, in, the, in the moment of his greatest trial, he says what? I believed, and because I believed, I speak truth. Faith when our faith is put to the test, and we're going to see this in, in not only his faith in his salvation, but faith in future restoration as well, in verses 14 and 15. Faith is, is tested by trials. Faith comes to life by trials. Faith comes to life in, in death. And, you know, and the ultimate test, the ultimate test of our faith is found in death. You can live a life, a believing life, you can live a professing life. You can live a, a Christian life. But the ultimate test of your faith is going to be found in death. Real death. Physical death. Because in that moment, that's when faith becomes a reality. Either it was real or the whole time it was just a scam. Either I believed or I didn't really believe. And now is that reality, those cracks are coming out. And what you see when someone faces death and they know the Lord... You see the beauty of the grace of God, the surpassing power of God manifested in that moment. There's no greater display of God's grace and God's surpassing power than in the moment facing death where someone displays that truth that I believe, therefore I speak truth. And what a, what a beautiful testimony. And the, the, the reverse of that, right, is in the face of great trials, our, our faith emerges. In the face of great trial, in the face of great trials, we start. Do we start questioning God? Do we start impugning God? Do we start criticizing God? Do we start saying, "Well, that's what being a Christian is like. I don't want to be a Christian. If that's what God is like, I don't want to believe in that God." If that's what God, in the moment, in the moment where we're squeezed, that our faith comes to life, and the, the ultimate moment of that test is when we're faced with death, and how we we embrace it. Not because we cherish death, but because ultimately our trust and our belief is in him. And Paul is embracing this 
And we see his faith put on display. He says in verse, continuing from verse 13 and 14, he says what? Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you in his presence. So there's two, two aspects of that for us, right? There's confidence and belief in the work of the cross, salvation, even though even for David is a forward look, but for us looking back at the salvation and looking forward to this future restoration as well. Verse 14, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. We see such such strength, the power of God being made manifest in faith, not only as he looks past his salvation, but as he looks forward to future restoration as well. Tim, Tim Savage, it's a long quote, but it's a beautiful quote, so I want to read through this. He says it is because, because he summons it well, he says it is because Paul believes in a future re- resurrection of the dead that he is presently willing to carry about his body the dying of Jesus. It is because he trusts in a future exaltation that he submits now to the condition of a slave. It is because he looks forward to a future heavenly life that he is willing to die daily. It is because he anticipates reigning with Christ in the future that he can speak so boldly in the present. Without faith in a future resurrection, Paul's present suffering would not only be intolerable, they would also be meaningless. He would, on his own admission, be a man most to be pitied. I put simply this. I says, I said, what Paul believed about the future had everything to do with how he lived in his present. He believed, therefore, he lived his life in faith, and that demonstration of faith is one that magnifies the superiority, uh, the surpassing power of the Lord. A lot more, I've got a lot more here to say, but I, I want to kind of land the plane and not crash it in the hillside here. So, last one, magnified in eternal glory, verses 16 through 18. So he wraps it up. He wraps it up by describing how we do not lose heart. So, he started out with that thought, right? Verse 1 of chapter 4. He wraps it up here in verse 16. Knowing this, Knowing what I believe, knowing this to be true, he says, knowing this, he says, I don't lose heart. Yes, I might be squeezed, but I don't get crushed. Yes, I might be perplexed at times, but I don't get discouraged and disheartened and abandoned. So we don't lose heart, right? Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Now, I, I do think that when, he's, when he says this here, he's, I think... There is a, a, a literal understanding of physically, um, what's the right word, growing old. Someone gave an illustration of, I always remember as a kid watch, watching tennis, Roland Garros, because we were in France, Roland Garros was the, important. And in the middle of the set, oh, they're, they're changing with a new set of tennis balls. That's going to give an advantage to the guy serving, they can, you know, just... Really? I mean, you play one game, you can't use the same set the whole time, but what you discover is how quickly a set of, some of you might play tennis, I don't. Jason maybe plays some, right? I play the better sport, that's table tennis. But, <laughs> so, 
You take a, a used tennis ball and you take a new tennis ball, you drop them, what happens? One bounces back up this high, one bounces up this high. So that's a pretty good analogy of growing old. You don't bounce back up this high so quickly. <laughs> but I think beyond that, Paul is not only describing a physical decay, Paul is also saying that the old sinful man is slowly wasting away, being deconstructed, while the new self in Christ is being renewed or reconstructed day by day. It's, it's like the, it's the put off and put on principle, but daily the old man is being deconstructed. Why? Because in view of the future complete restoration that we're going to have in Christ, the old man, the outer man, refers to our status as in Adam. Let's see if I put some of this notes down. It says, our outer man refers to our status in Adam as part of his present age, and our inner man refers to our status in the last Adam in Christ. And as a sinful old man is wasting away, Thankfully, and slowly we're being uh, recreated in his image and renewed in his image daily. And he describes that being taking place. And he says here that process in verse, in verse 15. For, he, says, he says, what, for it is all for your sake, so what, the main increase, thanks even what, to the, to the glory of God. All this that he's describing is what? For, for God, to God be the glory. Knowing that, he says he started out this letter, he started out the letter in not this chapter. He started out his letter by talking about the weight of affliction in chapter 1 of our letter. Now he's going to contrast this weight of affliction with what? What he calls the weight of glory. Verse 17. For this light momentary affliction is what? Preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. He's making a, a contrast between what he started out in this letter by talking about the weight of affliction that he's carrying for the ministry. And now he's contrasting that with what? The eternal weight of glory which which what there is there is there is no comparison. Paul's ultimate focus here is not on how heavy the affliction, but on, on how heavy the glory would be. Our momentary afflictions are preparing us for an eternal load of glory beyond measure, out of proportion, and as our afflictions will pass. As he believes, so will we embrace this weight of eternal glory beyond all comparison. Which is what he said also about the surpassing power belonging to God. is surpassing power beyond all comparison as well. With that and knowing that, he says what? He says we look not to things that are seen, but the things that are, that are unseen. But that everything we see with our eyes is temporary but the unseen is eternal. The certitude of the resurrection was inevitable and compelling. It determined the way Paul lived his life. And because of it, he bore in his body the dying of Jesus and lived as a slave to others and willingly died daily. C.S. Lewis says, Whatever is eternal is not eternal, is eternally out of date. What a what a, a powerful way to 
um, to end the section here. In chapter 5, he'll begin with describing the, the earthly, the heavenly abode that awaits. So he talked about his heavenly dwelling in chapter 5. And uh, 5, 6, and 7 stay on, on, the, um, on the same thought. And then 8 and 9, he'll, he'll, he'll switch with chapters 8 and 9. So we'll, we'll look at that in the spring, first of the year. Looking forward to hearing from Nathan and uh, the lesson that he'll be as well sharing a word around this season. So let's close in prayer. Father, we're, we're grateful that we have your word. Lord, I, I pray that you might give us a faith that, that Paul had, one where in the midst of, of the weight of affliction that he experienced, he leaned on. I look forward to the weight of glory that was awaiting. Lord, may we embrace weakness. May we, Lord, embrace the trials and embrace the afflictions that the surpassing power of God might be magnified in our lives. And pray, Lord, that our lives might reflect that, that we might live lives in light of these eternal truths. Lord, thank you for our time and this word, Lord. We thank you for this blessedness of this season. Uh, Bless this day, Lord, in your name we pray. Amen.